Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Friday, January 26th. The link between greenhouse gas emissions and climate change is clear. And the fashion industry is inextricably linked to climate change, responsible for up to 8% of global emissions. However, the impact of the crisis is not equally distributed. 
the most profitable fashion companies are often headquartered in the countries that have historically generated more emissions, while the nations with smaller carbon footprints often find themselves more severely impacted by extreme weather driven by the climate crisis. The countries that manufacture garments are probably the most climate vulnerable countries in the whole world. And these are people who never contributed to the problem. The industry is structured in a way that's very colonial. It's the rich countries that are reaping all the rewards and benefits, and it's the poor countries that have kept this industry profitable. We can't keep having conversations forever. It has to get to a time where we are moving to actions and not just having conversations. This week on the BOF podcast, our Chief Sustainability Correspondent Sarah Kent sits down with Aisha Berenblatt, the founder and CEO of Remake, sustainable fashion designer Sami Oteng, and Vidura Rala Panawe, Executive Vice President and Manufacturing Company Epic Group. This talk from BOF Voices 2023 examines how to end climate colonialism in the fashion industry. Here are Aisha Berenblatt, Sami Oteng, and Vidura Rala Panawe on the BOF podcast. I'm going to confess that we have been talking since yesterday evening about what we want to say in this panel. So we're going to try and press it to 20 minutes, but there's so much to unpack here. So I hope it's just a jumping off point for further conversations here in the room at Voices and for everyone watching as well. I want to start, though, Aisha, by going to you and asking you just to unpack a little bit what we mean by climate colonialism in a fashion context. It's a lot of jargon, isn't it? So let's just make it very simple. The fashion industry, by conservative estimates, is somewhere between 3 and 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. We're up there. It's a problem. And by 2030, we're estimating that we will lose upwards of $65 billion in losses if we don't get our arms around the wicked problem that is the climate crisis. So it makes complete business sense that we have to tackle the climate crisis. But the industry is structured in a way that's very colonial. Think about this business of fashion, a McKinsey report, right? The companies that are the most profitable are headquartered in the places where they have historically created the most amount of carbon emissions, the United Kingdom, the United States, the European Union. And so those are the countries that are not only top historically from a carbon emission standpoint, but they're also the ones that extract most of the value and profitability in the industry. Here we are, the people on this panel from production countries, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and the countries where we grapple with the waste streams of fashion, like Ghana. And these are countries historically that have been very low when it comes to carbon emissions. And yet, this industry is built on the backs of black and brown bodies. So that's really where the colonial structure is what we mean by it. It's the rich countries that are reaping all the rewards and benefits, and it's the poor countries that have kept this industry profitable. And so the climate conversation today is very much mimicking that colonial structure where the companies headquartered that are essentially glorified marketeers are telling production nations, how to deal with the climate crisis. They're setting science-based targets, but they're not paying for it. And the communities that we serve, the women in places like Pakistan and India and Bangladesh, where the climate crisis is already here, it's not something distant and far away, are not seeing any of the financial resources and support to help us grapple with the climate crisis. And so that's really what we mean by waste 
colonialism. Let's flip the script and actually have a conversation around the people who create value for this industry and how do we center her in the conversation. And I think it's an interesting moment in time to be having this conversation too, because tomorrow the UN's COP climate summit starts, this issue of funding for poorer countries that have been less responsible for climate change, but are now bearing the brunt of it very much on the agenda. But this conversation has not started happening to the same degree within the fashion industry yet. But I, th- I think we will start to see it happening more. And, you know, Aisha, you laid out very clearly how this is happening at a production level. But, but you know, Sammy, you're, you're sitting in Ghana. You know, you work with one of the world's largest markets for secondhand clothes. What's happening to all of this stuff once it's been bought, used, and discarded. You know, what's the situation you're seeing? Yeah, so I'm from Ghana, and that's where Kantamanto is. Kantamanto is the largest reuse and second-hand market in the world. It has around 30,000 people working. These are registered people, so there are more people working in the market. But, you know, the market sees around 50 million garments coming in from the global north into the global south, like into Kantamanto specifically, every week. And just for statistics, Ghana is only a country of around 32 million people. So imagine every week Ghana has to see 50 million garments being shipped in from this side of the world into the country just so we are the ones to manage these waste. So the garments come in and on average 40% of these garments go into waste. Because the issue is now there isn't any quality garments being made in the terms of fast fashion. It's very low quality. So by the time it moves here to Ghana, it's already waste and there's very little that can be done with it. And what happens is that because of the um, cultural fabric and the value of sentimental value of clothing and then the culture of reuse and recycling that exists in Ghana already, people readily find ways to reuse these garments. For example, the jacket that I'm wearing today is an example of the value that has been added to the waste that came from here and by people beautiful. in Ghana. Thank you very much. <laughs> in Ghana. But what happens is that, you know, if there's an influx coming in, the people have to now work at the pace of fast fashion. They can't work because there's value to it. They can't work because that's their culture. They're working because there's so much coming in and they have to bear the brunt of this. And there's also, within the community, girls as young as nine years old who have to bear, you know, carrying 55 kg bills throughout the market oftentimes leading them into fatal places, some of them dying whilst they're doing the work. But what happens is that there is no retail utopia. So no matter how, like, you know, how much Ghana works or Kantamanto works to add value to these garments, 40% of these garments also end up going to places that they shouldn't be. So if you go to beaches, now beaches in Accra have turned to clothing soups. For example, this is a bag of clothing tags that were collected in just less than an hour of cleaning a small stretch of beach, no bigger than the space that we are in now. And this bag contains like almost a thousand tags. And some of these tags were even, you know, devalued that we can't even add them here. But this is what we collected in less than an hour. So if you think about, you know, what is happening in Ghana and then the fact that most of these brands are even in deniability about what is happening in Ghana, it's very sad. Because if you think about it, we've, we've engaged with so many people. Tony talked to them about this. It's been years of conversations around you know, what is happening. But there is a lack of responsibility. Most brands are not talking. Because the thing is, even if we cease making clothing now, what happens to the years, the decades of damage that has been done to our environment? And I think what's interesting here is that essentially what's been done is the problem across the board is being outsourced. So right. you outsourced the production and the impact and you outsourced the managing waste. the waste. And yeah. you know, Vidura, I want to bring you in here because you're, you're sitting within a manufacturer. You're being asked now to, to deal with these issues. You know, 
brands who have set targets saying they're going to cut their emissions are coming to you and saying, hey, you know where our emissions there are? They're, they're in our suppliers, so please, please can you cut these emissions? But what does that look like for you? Yeah. So a bit of a background. Before I entered the fashion industry, I was a climate researcher. And I joined the fashion industry in 2006. And the work from a manufacturing side I started on climate is 2007. So quite a long time before the industry really put sustainability into the boardroom. But throughout that period, what we have seen as the structural problem, which is the colonial problem, has not changed. And what do I mean by that? Yes, it's true. The brands decide what targets that we as manufacturers should do. And if we don't have agency to set our own targets, how do you expect us to deliver on them? Right. So that's the starting point. If you think of this, when we talk about emissions, we talk about historical emissions. The countries that manufacture garments are probably the most climate vulnerable countries in the whole world. And these are people who never contributed to the problem. Right. Now, what we've done is that if you think about a value, so I'll give a good example. Let's talk about a completely linear value chain. $100 million company, 8% profit, say 8 million profits a year, a uh, million dollars. Tier one supplier, $450,000. Tier two supplier, $300,000. Okay, that will be like the value chain. Just to clarify for not everyone who spends all their time looking at this, tier two being sort of material processing. Tier two is the mill that makes the fabric. Tier one is the one that makes the garments. So the biggest emissions is actually where the fabrics are. So the person, the company who makes the least amount of money from top line and bottom line has to spend the most amount of money because the way we have distributed this responsibility is again coming from that colonial architecture. We tell you how much to deliver, you figure out how to do that. And we won't pay for it. And, and that's the interesting question because if you think about apparel supply chains, it's a very unique construction. You don't have this type of supply chains in the, say for example, food industry because this supply chain has three very interesting characteristics disposability because you want to decide today I'm not buying anything from you, I'm going to buy from you. And, and this disposability is not just at company level, it's at country level. Number two is uh, deniability because anything that happens in supply chain, we need to say it's not us. We have a very bad manufacturer in our supply chain. We've completely discontinued. And third one is cost. So we are looking at a supply chain that is designed and we co-created it. It's just not just the brands, it's brands, it's the media, it's the manufacturers. We co-created a system that is useful for get very, very cheap garments into the market. Now we are trying to address huge climate issue, sitting in the same business model, trying to keep same business relationships intact. And this is not going to work. It's not going to work. It isn't working. Right? So we have, as we discussed earlier, 2030 targets are coming. Okay? Within now and 2030, that's just six years. Within that six years, there's quite likely two business downturns that will happen. So the actual time to do climate action is possibly three years. And we haven't even started. There's no way that any brand or any manufacturer, hardly any manufacturer, will hit their 2030 targets now. I just want to repeat yeah. that because it's important. <laughs> we were saying there is no way any brand or manufacturer is going to hit 2030 targets that global nations have agreed are critical in order to stave off catastrophic climate crisis. I just want that so, to sink in. So yeah. there'll be few manufacturers do it, but as manufacturing fraternity, we will not do it. So I want to step back a little bit 
and ask, what levers are there for change? You know, Occam started this and said, you know, regulation is coming and sustainability is on the agenda of every boardroom right now. Aisha, how are you seeing that filter through? What are you thinking about the impact of regulation? Do you think that is what is going to drive change? Yeah. I mean, I think we first have to really just humanize the issue for all of you, right? We're talking about 70 million, mostly women of color in the production nations, the communities that we serve, for who the climate crisis is here now. And so what does that actually look like? Factories are very hot to begin with, if you've ever been in a factory. And we've had record temperature heat, which means that there's more fainting, heat exhaustion. It's not a productive workforce. But, you know, your life doesn't just end in the factory. It's also, if it's very hot at home, instances of domestic violence go up. And so this is the reality that you're dealing with. Then let's talk about episodic flooding, right? When two-thirds of my home country in Pakistan was underwater, what workers are saying is, well, we don't have the infrastructure to get to the factories. And if the factories are closed, we're not going to get paid. And by the way, for the last 20 years, we've already been making poverty wages and we don't have the safety nets to be caught. And so fundamentally, one of the things from a solution standpoint that we have to talk about is climate adaptation, not just mitigation. Every brand and retailer wants to talk about mitigation because they want to make money off the climate crisis. But our worker communities need climate adaptation resources. And by the way, not philanthropy. What we want is sort of equitable ways to make these communities whole. So that's one. I'd say the second is, you know, I, I read this report. And I'm very sorry to say, in terms of the climate crisis, when McKinsey talks about for the fashion brands to join the Sustainable Apparel Coalition or to join the Fashion Charter, we have 30 years of experience knowing that voluntary multi-stakeholder initiatives where brands pay into the conversation and then set voluntary goalposts don't work. For 30 years, we have said we're going to make living wages a reality in this industry, and it's not happened. We can no longer just talk. What we need is enforceable binding agreements. We know what works. But to do that, we can't just sit around and have conversations anymore. And so not all regulations are the same. And going back to the colonial constructs, a lot of the regulation is coming from the European Union and the United States without actually sitting down with the communities that have the solutions, talking to the manufacturers, talking to the workers. I want to get Sammy's perspective here because yeah. I know you've spent a lot of time in France where they've been updating legislation to make brands responsible for the waste generated by the clothes they make. And you've been talking to regulators there to try and explain the situation in Ghana. You know, what has that been like? Are you seeing your experiences represented in policies that are being made at an EU level that are dictating the shape mm. of the industry? Yeah, I think um, for a very long time now, what has happened between, you know, with conversations like this around building policies and regulations is because, is that the conversations are so isolated there's no access to these conversations. As Vidura mentioned earlier, the people bearing the brunt of all of these challenges are people back in my hometown, people in Pakistan, people in India, people in the global south. We are the ones bearing the brunt. So if there are conversations happening and they are happening at high levels and then the people who are suffering, leaving the realities of these challenges are not part of the conversation, then we are not going anywhere. And I think, you know, one thing that has happened with the conversation that we have in France so far is, you know, people, because they are so isolated, they don't even see what is going on. And I mean, you can show visuals and media and all of it, but if 
you live in a space where the reality is not around you, you only look at the video, you feel sad, and then move on. You don't, you know, you, you move on to your life and then forget about what you just saw. And I think it has been, you know, a hard conversation trying to get people to understand because if you don't know it, then you don't know it. And that is what it has been. And another thing is, you know, what you're calling for within EPR, which is the standard producer responsibility, is, you know, making it's globally accountable. Because if you're building these policies and they are just in such a way that the spaces where this clothing are coming from is what is benefiting, then it's, it's already flawed. Mm-hmm. That's where the changes should, should come in. And then one of the things that we're also talking about is like, you know, being able to publicize production volumes. Because we talk about these challenges around like, you know, fashion and fashion ways. But the truth is, we don't even know how much, you know, we are producing in terms of fashion. We say it's 100 billion to 150 billion. That's a 50 billion gap. Right. Who is there? <laughs> so if we are not able to find this, and then this is, these are things that all brands have access to. It's difficult to, you know, calculate your carbon footprint, but it's very easy to count your garments. One, two, three is very easy arithmetic that everybody can do. So why is it that we are not making this public? Until we understand the problem that we have, we can't even move on to having conversations around solutions. And another thing is, you know, talking about access, I'm pretty sure that um, the BOF team have been so supportive, like, you know, trying to support me getting our visas here. But the documents that we, I had to submit to get a visa to be here was about this thick. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Maduro knows. (laughs) (laughs) Was about this thick. So if it takes this lot of work jumping through hoops to even be part of the conversation. Yeah. That in itself is colonialism. That in itself is a problem. And we have to speak English. Exactly. <laughs> to be here. Yeah. Exactly. So all of these things are things that need to be discussed before we go into the, like, the broader conversation of around how to look around solutions towards like, these policies. Until we do these things, we keep around running in circles. And we can't keep having conversations forever. It has to get to a time where we are moving to actions and not just having conversations. And I think it's important to remember this year, as Imran was saying, you, know, you, see, you see the crisis. You know, it is here. The climate crisis is here. We are in a record year for temperatures. This is not a problem for the future. And I'm going to go back to you, Vidura, to have the last word because we're running out of time. You know, you said earlier that we're trying to fix this within a model that is fundamentally broken. We are trying to fix this in a structure that almost we cannot fix it within. What is a structure that would work better? Okay. But let me also go back to one simple piece. What is the problem? What is the problem we are trying to solve? This year, we will hit 1.5 degrees over pre-industrial in terms of temperature. So that was what we were trying to sort out in 2030. So all the climate targets and Paris Agreement that we've spoken about, it's not valid as a target anymore. That just means that, you know, that we have, haven't just started. That just means that we need to start and move faster. But the piece that I want to talk about is that we cannot be separated as brands, manufacturers, mills to solve the problem. We have to recognize that this is a collective value chain. I don't want anybody to talk about supply chain emissions. We need to talk about value chain emissions. And I don't, need to, I don't want anybody to talk about your manufacturer. You sort out your emissions. We as a collective must sort out our emissions. And what that means is that not distributing within ourselves, saying that you have to put this much money, you have to put this much money. We have to collectively fund decarbonization. Right. Final point is that how did a conversation around climate change or climate crisis became a conversation only about decarbonization? Mm-hmm. We as industry are the ones who say so much about how much we care about the apparel workers. These are the people who are going to get flooded. These are the people who will have heat uh, exhaustion in the factories. 
Why is that not part of the conversation? And why is equity just transition and repaying the climate debt by the global north about the historical emissions outside the purview of our climate conversations? So, so long as we package our climate conversation into a place that is convenient to us to talk about and not look at real problems, real people of people like who Sami is representing, who Aisha is representing, who I'm representing, we will not solve any problem. We will just talk about it and have glorified marketing campaigns only. And my only request is that this has to stop now and that we need to create a new path. We need to relook at our supply chain relationships. We need to talk about value chain emission reduction and we need to define what collective action is. And it's not only about sharing money, it's about sharing resources, but sharing spaces to talk about like this. Well, thank you all thank you. for coming. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.